welcome back to Africa as a Country and welcome back to Africa as a Country Talk or what is also known in shorthand as AIAC Talk. I'm Sean Jacobs, the editor of Africa as a Country. Um, and I'm here along with my co-host, Will Shoki, who happens to also be our staff writer. Thanks for watching and listening. Today, we have a very important topic that we want to work our way through. We want to, uh, uh, that's Will that you see there right now. Um, we've invited Omar Barr and uh, Samar Al-Balusi, uh, two scholars of international relations who happen to be part of Africa as a country. Um, Omar is an editorial board member and Samar a contributing editor uh, of Africa as a country. And we would like to talk to them about race um, and international relations. Just to quickly a little bit about them. Omar is an assistant professor of political science at Morehouse College in Atlanta and has a new book out, State of Justice, The Politics of the International Court, which came out this year from Cambridge. Omar's interests also include the global governance of cultural heritage in conflict, the post-colonial critique of international legal theory, and the study of the global South in and uh, within international relations. And we're hoping that some of these topics will come out in today's discussion. Samar uh, was trained as an anthropologist and she's on the faculty of the University of California at Irvine. She works on the racialized uh, geopolitics of the war on terror, especially in East Africa. Um, and as well as the social construction of expertise and authoritative knowledge uh, attending to the significance of race, gender, and geopolitics in shaping whose knowledge counts as expertise. And as you can gather, both of them, obviously, they, have, they, they will have a lot to say about the topic that we want to talk about, about race um, and international, international affairs or international relations. So I'm going to let Will start us off by asking the first question. Yeah, first of all, thanks for, for being on the show, guys. Um, it's really awesome to have you here. I suppose uh, the question I want to ask is, I, I personally find international relations to be a very confusing and complicated area of any of trying to understand the world and how it works. So, I mean, I'm interested in how both of you came to international relations as a professional practice and a, and a discipline that you're academically involved in. Uh, maybe Samar, if you could, if you could start by answering that and then Omar, you can follow. Sure. So I guess my story of coming to IR is one of coming and then fleeing <laughs> in the sense that I studied international relations as an undergrad um, and was shocked when I got to college that the coursework, you know, in international relations remained so U.S. centric. I remember signing up for a class called problems in American foreign policy and expecting to hear about all the things the U.S. was doing wrong. <laughs> And instead, the focus of the class was what needs to what needs to change in order to better protect U.S. interests. And so that left me similarly confused, like you were saying, Will, um, about IR and the point of it. And I did kind of stick in that world for many years because I pursued I did a master's in human rights and then ended up working for a bunch of different human rights organizations most of which were focused on, I guess I spent the bulk of my time focused on kind of post-conflict justice and reconciliation scenarios. I worked for the International Center for Transitional Justice. And these were the years when, prior even to joining the ICTJ, when the ICC was just getting off the ground. And 
I was one of those people who was really excited about the court and what it offered um, as a potential source of justice. And I was very involved in the advocacy efforts in the early days, but as the court started to actually conduct its investigations for the first time in Uganda, I started to realize the ways in which it was being politicized. And um, over the next several years, I, you know, more generally, I think, was confronted with the lack of interest among IR kind of types. In my case, it was in the field of international human rights to confront the power inequalities that continue to structure the global order. And so in some ways you could say that's what prompted me to flee and to pursue a PhD in anthropology. Now, whether that was the right move or not, whether anthropology is a discipline is any better or worse, we can debate. <laughs> Uh, just like Samar, my interest in IR has been also uh, a bit of a not straight line. I am, um, uh, in case it's not clear yet, I'm from Senegal. So uh, I grew up there, went to college there. Um, so I studied uh, geography at the University of Sheikh Antejob in Dakar. And then after that, I came to the U.S. Uh, to pursue graduate studies. But um, things that happened, so I wasn't able to um, study right away. Um, so I fell off the bandwagon for a few years. Um, seven years later, I found my, back, uh, my way back again to school. And at that time, I was no longer interested in geography, so I decided to pursue another undergraduate degree. Uh, forgive my uh, uh, computer chiming there. So I pursued another um, undergraduate degree at Ohio State University because I was living in Columbus uh, at the time. And then uh, afterwards, um, that's when I went and uh, did an MA degree uh, in international relations. I was first interested in international justice because at the time I was doing my MA uh, thesis there was the case of uh, Hissen Abre in Senegal. Um, Hissen Abre was a former prisoner of Chad who had been living in Senegal in exile, and there was this uh, attempt to bring him to, to justice, and I decided to write uh, my MA thesis uh, on that. Um, following uh, uh, my studies at Ohio University, I went to the University of Florida to pursue uh, PhD um, in IR and decided to uh, extend my interest a little bit into the ICC uh, because there were a lot of debates going on at the time between the relationship between um, the International Criminal Court and the African states and uh, citizens. I have a question just to, to follow up on this, Samar. You mentioned, oh, I read in your bio actually, um, that you, while you were working international human rights, you sort of became familiar or try to figure out or try to understand what is this idea that you call the culture of international policymaking. Can you say something about that? Because I think, you know, as we will keep going, a lot of this will become clear. Sure. So I think when most people hear um, the word anthropology, they tend to think that you're supposed to go somewhere far away to some distant land and study some foreign culture. Um, and there is more and more recognition within kind of critical anthropology circles these days that you can find culture everywhere. You know, culture, there's a culture of, um, at the ICC, for example, there's a culture at the UN, there's a culture at the World Bank. And what I mean by that is that 
the employees and the staff who work at institutions like this are socialized on a day-to-day -day level in terms of the work they do, the reports they write, the conversations they have, the meetings, the conferences. Uh, they're socialized to think about themselves in particular ways as experts, right? As the people who, who possess the knowledge that then must be kind of transferred out into the world to the people who don't have the training that they have. And so the very fact that they have a degree in X, right, and attended Y school is supposed to be a marker of their expertise in a particular topic um, in a way that then, of course, negates the um, accumulated knowledge of the average person in the world, right, who themselves may have just as, if not more, a sophisticated understanding of a particular issue as the so-called expert. Um, so what I note, you know, I this is something that I was kind of vaguely aware of at the time that I spent working for these NGOs and anthropology gave me the tools with which to make sense of what I was observing. You know, why was it that my colleagues consistently thought that they had a role to play in a given scenario? And I think like if I were to pick a particular moment, well, one, an obvious one in, in the context of the work I do is Kenya where the uh, violence that took place in the aftermath of the 2007 elections triggered all of this international anxiety, right? What's happening in Kenya? And my colleagues at the International Center for Transitional Justice just assumed that there was a role for them to play to come in and say, well, you know, we have something to teach you about quote unquote transitions and how you can learn from other scenarios like South Africa in order to reconcile with the past. Well, who's to say that Kenyans themselves didn't have their own ideas, right? And then another uh, context that really stood out to me was the 2011 uh, uprisings that took place all over the continent. Um, and you could see in my colleagues this like sense of confusion that people had taken matters into their own hands, that they had taken to the streets rather than you know going to the conference room for a capacity building workshop, right? And the very language of revolution just doesn't compute in those like boardrooms and capacity building workshops. So then there was this kind of need to adjust like, okay, how do we continue to be relevant as so-called experts um, at a moment like this, which is intriguing for, for sure. That, I think that's, that raises a very interesting sort of um, way to think about international relations, because I think that on the one hand, international relations is commonly understood as the conduct between states, right? So how states interact with each other, what institutions they interact with each other with, and how they express their attitudes and relationships towards each other. So things such as foreign policy being something that we understand as being a, a key part of international relations between states. Uh, and there's also another side of international relations, which is a lot of what you described now, which is international relations as a, as a discipline or as a profession. So this is the international relations practices, which happens in universities or which happens in think tanks and uh, NGOs and things like that. So how do you guys think we should approach international relations then as a topic? Should we talk about these two sort of dimensions separately um, and how do they uh, relate to each other in, in your understanding? 
I, I think there, um, there, is a, there is a distinction to be made, as you said, um, between the discipline of IR itself, um, the practices uh, for those who study how IR is studied, um, what is happening in the classroom, what is happening in the conferences, and who are the ones who are publishing what. Um, that is to be differentiated from um, the international practice of IR, how states are conducted themselves. And oftentimes there's even a disconnect. Uh, um, unless you are doing specifically foreign policy, what happens in the discipline tend not to be directly tied to um, the states of practices themselves. Um, so I think, so, so with that, and I think this is, this is uh, the, the reason we're here, right, is that there's been all these, like there's been a bunch of controversies around IR more recently. And it's mostly, well, there's the kind of like Donald Trump with sort of shithole countries, kind of the way that the United States dominate the conduct of IR. And as, I mean, they sort of gone off the deep end They've always been, and I should, I should, I should correct myself. It's not like Obama was like. Once you look at the fine print, you're like, oh, he's like sending drones and etc. And so on. And, you know, if you're on Twitter, every time you somebody's like, Obama's great. Somebody like, yeah, Obama sent off drones. So there's that, and then there's the sort of like the way Trump is kind of ridiculous. And at the same time, there's also in this moment in academia, right? There's been a bunch of. Um, controversies that have emerged. And I would like for you to take us through some of those and then we can maybe unpack them. But while you do that, this is not the first time. I mean, it's not like people in IR have now discovered that there's racism in IR. And I've seen all the articles that were printed in, in, in foreign policy or, you know, Duck of Minerva, et cetera, like all these websites, there's been the controversies in security studies, et cetera. But it's not like it's new. It's not like IR as a discipline alongside kind of the practice of like how we how states relate to each other. It's not like this just happened because Black Lives Matter is happening, right? Any any either of you want to answer that um, or take a stab? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try to uh, to address this. Um, you are right. This controversy um, is just one more in a long line of controversies in IR. So um, there's been always um, these kind of um, uh, disconnected between the story that IR tells about itself and how IR is experienced by a lot of scholars themselves and but also a lot of the people who are being um, studied uh, by, uh, by IR. Um, typically, if you are in an introductory course of IR, um, you are taught that the history of IR is one of great debates. And uh, IR emerged right after World War One, and there were debates between the realists and the idealists, and then there were debates between methodology, the traditionalists, and the behavioralists. And then you had a third debate, a neorealism versus neoliberalism. And then in the early 90s, you had the reflectivism that came about. So you were taught about these um, different paradigms that all ends with an ism. And this is the story that IR tells itself. But um, throughout history, there's been also a lot of pushback against it, that history that IR believes um, it's, uh, it's a telling. 
um, because others have challenged these uh, these debates themselves and whether they were actually debates. Um, others have challenged the core concept of IR when you talk about sovereignty, what was the role of Westphalia and why does not IR specifically address specific issues such as race. Now, specifically regarding race, it's not totally correct to say that IR doesn't talk about race. I think it's a mainstream IR which ignores race, but there's always been all the IR scholars who have pushed back against this by um, showing the ways in which IR itself is built on uh, racial foundations. And in many ways, until now, we still see IR being a practice um, and has not uh, self-reflected about those um, racial and racist foundations upon which it's built. Right. And can you, because I know that there's been a number of scholars, like even from the beginning, right? Like there's been, uh, in the, I think in the, 19, nine, the 1910s, 1920s, when, when foreign policy came into being, I mean, I understand, uh, full disclosure, my wife, Jessica Blatt, did a book on race and the making of American political science. And I remember when she told me that something like foreign policy, when it started, it was known as the Journal of Race Development. So many of the, the this, this, this IR that we know started in, in kind of the an American, well, talking about the American side, it's about American colonialism. And I, and in some of the, the stuff I've read recently, also in the, in the foreign affairs article, there's reference to how, and I think this is more the Anglo, the sort of Euro European version of it, the kind of the version coming out of, out of Britain, um, May, found its origins in, in the, the conflict with, in South Africa at the beginning of the 20th century with the Anglo-Boer War, what people know as the South African War. Um, why do you think that that, even though people knew that that's a problem, why do, why do you think it's, it's taken so long for that? And I know you're saying that there were all these people doing all this work, but why is it that this sort of persisted, despite the fact that in, in, the, in a bunch of other disciplines, it seemed people had moved on in history, there's been some revisionism. I think in political science, there was perestroika. Why did it take so long for IR to maybe have these kind of conversations in the way they're having them now? Either of you can answer that if you want. Omar, you go ahead. Um, <laughs> okay, so um, you're right that um, IR itself, and I think this is something that a lot of IR scholars um, are not too willing to entertain or even to look closely at. IR itself, when it emerged, as some scholars have shown recently, was um, the study of race relations, um, both in the United States and around the world. It was based on um, how to govern other races and how to avoid race wars, both in the US South and around the world. This is why um, um, W.E.B. Du Bois wrote already in uh, 1903 that about the global uh, color line. So it's not just about the United States. And looking at that too, the global color, uh, color line, um, Du Bois also in 1915 wrote um, an article uh, on the causes and the origins of World War One, which was also, according to him, based on um, controlling um, the darker races, as uh, it was called uh, 
uh, back then. But IR scholars try to look the mainstream IR, look at um, European, Western Europe, continental philosophers and uh, drawing from enlightenment, looking at the piece of Westphalia and trying to tell um, a history of IR that is based basically on liberalism and liberal thinkers from, um, from uh, continental Europe. Um, fortunately, over the past few years, um, as you've said, for instance, um, two years ago, Jessica Blood wrote um, a very good book on uh, race and uh, the history of American political science. Um, right after that, um, there is another book by Bob Vitalis um, also that looks at specifically at IR and look at the role that race in controlling darker races has played. Uh, into the beginning of the discipline of IR, and also how some IR scholars who were African-Americans have always been ignored by the discipline itself. Um, so Vitalis talks a lot about um, the Howard School uh, of IR, where you had some pioneer work um, by African-Americans discussing IR. But we haven't had a recording, we haven't had a discussion in the discipline itself about what that means. Right, and I think, um, Samar, maybe you could talk a little bit about one of these uh, more recent controversies or what sort of set things off. One of them is a book uh, by Kamari Clark, right, who is a quite an esteemed professor in our black um, African-American. Can you just sort of like, for people who don't, because there were sort of little bits of it on Twitter, but if you don't know the discipline and just kind of, can you just sketch like that whole picture? Yeah, I'll just say a little bit about um, the book itself first and then, and then uh, dive into the controversy that that arose out of a, a very unfair critique of it. Um, so what Kamari Clark does in her book, which is entitled Affective Justice, the ICC and the Pan-Africanist Pushback, um, is to, she really, she really kind of brings to the fore um, through an academic study, an ethnographic study of what policymaking related to the ICC looks like and feels like, right? So she's giving a sense of what it's like for African political leaders to, on a kind of daily level, right? And their engagements with the ICC, with uh, diplomats from around the world, what it feels like to be told, you know, this is the answer for you, right? And why are you contesting it? And she, in, you know, in telling the story and doing this, this research, which extends from the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa to The Hague, to different cities across the continent, um, she's, she's um, shedding light on what she refers to as the declarations of non-cooperation in response to the ICC's near exclusive focus on African leaders. And these forms of pushback are significant because they point to the ways in which asymmetrical global power relations are interpreted and contested, right? So there was a round table held on her book. And, and I guess I should also just step back for a moment and mention who she is. She's a professor of anthropology at UCLA. She has devoted the last 20 years, at least, to studying international justice institutions. She was the first black female social science professor to receive tenure at Yale. Um, and one of the contributors to a roundtable forum that was held on her book, hosted by the blog Opinio Juris, 
um, offered, I think, a really apt uh, um, characterization of the significance of her intervention in this book. Mark Goodale um, says that the book demands a fundamental reevaluation of the very meaning of justice, right, in the context of the inequalities that continue to structure the global order. And uh, in pointing to the inherent politicization of the court's work, he says that her book compels a reconsideration of the kind of traditional understanding between law and justice, because we just tend to assume that the law, particularly international law, is this kind of neutral, rational sphere, right? Now, another contribution to this blog was by Richard Wilson of the University of Connecticut, who accused Kamari Clark in her book of uh, one, misunderstanding international law, and two, being an apologist for African war criminals. <laughs> Just astounding, astounding indictments that are completely unfounded and that, that entirely miss the purpose of the book and the argument of her book, right? Um, and the Nigerian scholar activist Wumi Asubiarodada wrote a fantastic rebuttal uh, that I want to draw people's attention to called Theorizing While Black, Whitesplaining and Its Enduring Tragedies for Contemporary Black Thought. It was published on medium.com. And in that, Wumi describes um, Richard Wilson's response as, uh, oh, and by the way, he, he refers to Kamari Clark as engaging in a, quote, impassioned critique Right, which again is also just so ironic given that her focus is on the significance of affect and emotions and the way in which debates about the ICC become so embroiled in emotions, right? As you're making sense of the inequalities that continue to structure this, this system. Um, and so what Wumi says in her critique is that this is a familiar dismissal of black thought, right? Uh, implying that she's driven by emotions rather than you know, rationality and intellect. And uh, the implicit message, of course, is that her identity as a black scholar prevents her from being able to engage with the subject matter with integrity. Um, so I think what's fascinating here is that figures like Wilson are used to being kind of in the driving seat and are used to being the ones who are recognized as experts. Right? And so there's this kind of insecurity that comes to the fore when other forms of knowledge are being foregrounded that destabilize his positionality as the as a as an expert. That's a I mean, just to ask a follow-up question. Um, yeah, there's there's a there's a lot to say about this, about this specific exchange that you've you've sketched for us here. But I guess what I'm what I'm interested in is that I think Wilson's response um, seems to me also to be typical of a certain a certain desire to kind of to kind of engage these international institutions as existing without blemish as as being these objective um sort of arbiters as having no special interests and as being non-ideological and not pushing a worldview that's that we that they sort of operate in a terrain where um, the end of history has occurred and um, they'll bring us closer and closer to to world peace and and stability. Um, I mean, when these sort of conversations happen in the academy, what do you think their implications are for international relations outside of the academy? And and what is at stake when these when these discussions happen? 
Um, it seems like there's there's more to this there's more to this sort of impulsive desire that I see exhibited not only in the academy but but outside of it as well to sort of defend these these international institutions and to dismiss any critiques that emanate from from countries that are often at the receiving end of their their at the at the bottom of the hierarchy of the international order. Omar, would you like to jump in? Or? Uh, yeah, uh, that's that's a good point, um, especially when it comes to the literature on international criminal justice. That um, the ICC has been engulfed in a lot of um, controversies uh, over the past two decades, and that there's been actually a um, lot of strong critiques of the institution itself. So I think the um, what I take away from this uh, this um, view or this critique of uh, Kamari Klaska book is not it's not necessarily that um, her book was um, a strong critique or pushback against what the ICC does. I think there's an issue of positionality and identity here. Um, had she not been a woman, had she not been an, of an African descent, I don't think um, a colleague would have come out so strongly against her and literally accusing her of uh, being a cheerleader for dictators and uh, for uh, non-accountability for, for crimes. Um, this is something that um, is felt by a lot of um, scholars uh, of African descent because if you criticize some of these international organizations, regardless of the aims, regardless of the motive that these institutions have, if you criticize them, you are often viewed as someone who is not being detached enough, who is not coming from an objective position, or worse, you are viewed as someone who is siding with the, the war criminals because you are criticizing a court that is um, putting them to trial. Yeah, and I think, you know, just to briefly add on to that, um, she's in this book, she's really giving voice to the frustrations that that there really isn't much space for to articulate within the formal domain of IR, right? Like you just, you simply can't at the UN or, or in The Hague um, jump in and say, you know, this is a neo-colonial entity. I mean, maybe more and more people are, but, uh, and, and even to do so, still you don't have the room to really let it all out, right? In terms of the frustration. And so that's what this book creates the space for. And I think it's really, really important to acknowledge. And I think in a way her book is an intervention that extends you know, far beyond the ICC, right? Like it extends to geopolitics more broadly, right? And the ways in which Global South leaders consistently confront, make sense of, and where possible push back against the inequalities that continue to structure the border. The global border. So uh, just to just to so because when you when we because I want to ask I also want to ask about the critical uh, security studies controversy and I would like for one of you to like break that down before just to follow up on on just to kind of bookend what we're doing here. W what is it? So if I'm thinking back in the 1950s or there was like Bandung, uh, there were there were lots of you know. Uh, public intellectuals of African descent 
there were officials um, working within the UN system like Ralph Bunch. And, I, and again, these people aren't like uncomplicated. Uh, there were journals that were popular that, that came out of literary sort of uh, um, traditions, but also uh, inserted themselves very, very um, actively into these debates. Why does why does why does it feel like like if 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 by sheer numbers the global south we we have volume? Why is it that somehow I feel like we're in the we're defensive? Like why why what happened? Did, did we lose? I'm not sure if I'm articulating this very well. I'm just having sort of like series of emotions around it. Like what is it about our position that we that we we cannot react? Uh, in a way that that um, changes the power dynamic. I mean, how do we get there? Like, what? Is, why is it that we in a place where, as you're describing, Kamari Clark brings out a book, and you have this kind of reaction, and then sometimes the only pushback happens on like a social media platform. Why doesn't it happen within these institutions, like within ISA, within APSA, whatever? You know, like for those who, for the people who are not academics, the International Studies Association the um, uh, American Political Science Association, et cetera. I mean, recently, as both of you know, African Studies, for example, uh, it's now most recent former president, Jean Orman, gave her presidential address, basically revisiting the kind of the very, the history of racism that is embedded within African studies. And kind of, I think Omar was there and, and, and demanding that, that you know, there be introspection. I mean, we can debate as to whether African studies then went and did that or how slow it is to kind of, you know, these things take time or whatever. But what is it that, why are we, why are we here? This is what I'm thinking about. Can I, add another, can I add another dimension to that question? Um, to, and maybe by way of an example, I can do that. So to, to, to expand on Sean's idea of, you know, we as the global South by sheer numbers, um, dominate the world, and you'd expect that we'd have the ability to articulate our our positions and attitudes towards the construction of the global order without always being sidelined or or you know um, inferiorized in the ways that you're describing. So so at a, like a broader level as well, and maybe this is making a, a very difficult sort of question for you guys to answer um, if I add my layer to it, but. Looking at, for example, Brexit as, as one historical event, um, the United Kingdom decides to leave the European Union and in doing so calls question, calls, uh, pull, calls attention to, to the idea of international institutions of integration, right? Economic integration, social integration, whatever. That happens and there's a, there's a large concerted effort internationally to justify that decision, to say, we need to start questioning the EU. We need to start questioning this project of trying to create international institutions. And then comparatively, if uh, an African state says, we wanna leave the ICC, we don't believe in, in these international institutions, um, that's not received as, as constructively as if, let's say, another country were to do so. You know, the United States isn't a signatory to the Rome Statute. That doesn't get sort of um, questioned. Uh, so why, yeah, so to add to Sean's question of how did we get here, how do we get here in that sense as well? Why is there no Bandung? Whether <laughs> in academia or in, 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 in politics? Samara, you want to go? <laughs> I mean, this is, yeah, there's, there's a lot here. 
I think, you know, there's so many ways to make sense of this. And uh, I'll just throw out the ideas that come to mind. One is area studies, right? We have been compartmentalized on purpose. We have been divided on purpose, primarily within the US Academy, but the US Academy then has ripple effects across the world, right? That we're only supposed to think according to regions, not across. Within area studies, we are encouraged to think along the lines of nation states and not beyond, right? We're not, um, when we, you know, when a scholar of Kenya studies Kenya, they rarely think about the all the transnational forces that are at work within Kenya itself, right? And what that means. And then when it comes time to talk about things like post-conflict justice, the answers that are put forward reinforce the state-centric framework, right? So whether it's in terms of accounting for the past or how we move forward, it just reinforces the, the machinery of the state as the answer to all social and political problems. Another element of this is the, is the donor industrial complex, right? That feeds into thinking in very particular ways that, uh, that channels our thinking um, in very narrow ways, again, away from kind of cross regional um, transnational solidarity frameworks and that has its own interests, right? That push back against revolt. <laughs> um, they want us to stay busy. That's really the primary goal of the donor industrial complex to stay busy with your capacity building meetings and your report writing. Um, and I think I, I do see there, um, there is an opportunity within the scholarly world to pay more attention to the forms of pushback that Kamari Clark describes in her book. And for me, what that looks like is not being so quick to dismiss the global South states as mere proxies or clients of US empire, for example, because you're just, you know, you're, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, yeah, and you're denying even yourself the chance to learn so much, right? As well as denying the agency of the global South states, right? There's, I think it's precisely by looking at the ways in which global South states are operating in all these different venues that we can see um, the tensions that arise, right? The frictions that arise when empire doesn't get what it wants, right, necessarily. Um, and it's those small moments, those small frictions that present openings from my perspective to then push for more. So just, just before we move on, can you give me, can you just like maybe put a little meat on that? Where is, give me a moment where there was that like instance or an instance where we could have like pushed. And I'm, I'm imagining Omar might say something about the ICC. Uh, like where, where have been like a moment like that where people could have taken advantage of something like that? Okay, I'll give you two examples that in some shape or form tied to the research that I do. Uh, one was a story I heard from an interlocutor who was, we were in New York and he was visiting from Nairobi. He was spending a lot of time in the embassy, uh, the Kenyan embassy in New York at the time meeting with people. And this was around 2016 when uh, the UN had, um, they had just issued a study findings on the outbreak of violence in South Sudan. They needed to find a culpable um, actor within the peacekeeping force in South Sudan for, for who, did, you know, who didn't do enough to prevent the violence. 
And out of all the actors they chose to reprimand, they chose Kenya and their peacekeeping force and the general representing the Kenyan contribution to the peacekeeping force in South Sudan. The Kenyans were pissed, right? They were like, why are you sanctioning us when there's so many other people here? I think the Chinese were equally capable of being um, under scrutiny for the role they played, but because of the power and the clout that they wield at the UN, nobody paid any attention. A second example would be in January of this year when Al-Shabaab attacked a military base in Northern Kenya. And there was all this talk about who was responsible for protecting the base. Was it the Kenyan troops or the Americans who also have a presence there? And there similarly, I think we, have it, we could have a chance to look into talking to some of these people on the ground and say, so whose job really was it? Like who, who runs this base? And in the little probing that I've done, I've learned that in September of last year, the US did assume full control of that military base. Um, I will add a little bit about um, what Sean said regarding uh, Bandung and why there is no other uh, Bandung now. Um, I think a lot of scholars from the Global South or even just interested in the Global South are still working on those questions and writing and reflecting on the legacy of uh, Bandung and um, Third World or the Global South Solidarity. There was a book that was published um, uh, just a few years ago on the legacy on Bandung. And it was an edited book. It had a contribution from uh, uh, big names in the scholarship regarding the Global South. There was, um, Bob Vitalis was, uh, had a chapter in there. Um, Siba Groviga had a, uh, had a chapter in there. So it's, it's, it's that the institutions such as ISA or ASA, it's incredibly hard to, got, to get them to recount with their legacy and to, to recenter them about uh, these kind of questions. I think it was very uh, courageous uh, what uh, ASA did a couple of years ago by basically revisiting um, the racist foundation of the ASA, the African Studies Association. But again, it took 50 years after the African-American stormed the stage, literally in Montreal in 69, for the ASA to get to say, what are we doing? We've never had an African woman win the best book award. What does this mean for the institution? What does it mean for the best book award to be named after Herkowitz, given uh, who he was? So, Again, it's not that Global South scholars are not working on this question to try to dismantle um, this institution. It's just that it's a very, very hard to, um, to make progress. One, I mean, one interesting intervention um, that's recently come out, I think the book was released last year, um, is by Adam Gattatro. She wrote a book which I'm still working my way through and so far I'm absolutely in love with. It's called world making after empire. And I think what's very interesting about this book is that she looks at the moment in which these international institutions such as the United Nations were created and their exclusion of large parts of the global south and how those places in the global south fought for their integration into these institutions. And she says that the moment of their integration was one of unequal and burdened membership of these institutions. Um, but despite that, during the post-colonial wave in the 1960s, 
these countries before that, during that moment, and afterwards, um, you know, during that moment of foment and in, in decolonization, um, they were they were embarking on a on a world making project uh, that sought to transform the entire international order rather than simply refashioning former European colonies as independent nation states. Um, and some of the key figures in this movement include people such as W.E.B. Du Bois, who you've mentioned earlier, uh, Namdi Azikwe, Kwame Nkrumah, uh, Julius Nyerere, and a whole host of, of different characters. Um, so, so why do you think it's, it's important then to, to recognize the world-making ambitions of the anti-colonial nationalisms of, of post-independence Africa and, and other parts of the global South? I mean, basically, just to, to add to that, Africans have also thought about their place in the world, if you just think of Africans, and have always been in the world. Like, moving between, you know, Nkrumah is studying in America, then he goes back, he goes to live in London, where he hooks up with a whole bunch of other people, and they just, you know, they whether they be a South African writer, Peter Abrams, or including Jomo Kenyatta, you know, problematic in some ways, but these people are all thinking, they are thinking about their place in the world. So it's like, why, why isn't that made like more forcefully part of these curriculums, part of the way that we are rethinking on another narrative or how we got here? Yeah, they're thinking about their place in the world as well as what the world should look like. Um, mm -hmm. Something that is often... So as we're talking about the place of African intellectuals in the world, we also um, address simultaneously how do we remove the centrality of some Western actors in, in the discourse. And in many ways, the post-colonial and decolonial scholarship is so far ahead of um, the rest of uh, how the world operates. Um, so Gita Cho, for instance, in her book, um, talks uh, a lot uh, about Woodrow Wilson and how how in the world is Wilson a central figure of self-determination if you pay close attention to the scholarship. And it's just now, a couple of weeks ago, I think that finally um, Wilson is coming off some, some buildings, but even that is so far late compared to what post-colonial, decolonial, or even just a scholarship from the Global South perspective have shown us about these figures. Um, so, oh, you want to you go somewhere? Yeah. yeah go ahead. Um, I mean, I think that what we need, I think Adom's book is fantastic, and we need sequels to that book that bring us up to the present day, right? Because um, I think that all of us, um, cling to, in a, in a kind of romanticized way, the past, right? And, and precisely the figures that Adom writes about in that book. And we ask ourselves, what happened, <laughs> right? And I think now what we need is to kind of move beyond that romanticism and just take the time to engage. One, we need to engage with political elites across the global South. We shouldn't be dismissive of them. So many scholars are. We need to be hearing what they're confronting in the work that they do, you know, on the global stage and and to write about it, you know, in ways that reflect all the complexity and messiness. Right. 
Um, but two, we also need to move away from only from political elites, right? Because people all over the world have their own understanding, very sophisticated understanding of geopolitics, right? They're, everyone thinks globally. It's not just the political leaders. Right, which is, um, I don't know if Will wanted to, to follow up. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think, sorry, I mean, I think what you said um, towards the end there is, is really key, Samar, which is that um, citizens of these countries we're talking about think globally and think about their own perspectives on the world because, yeah, I, I think you're right in saying that we often place too much emphasis on political elites who are able to have this cosmopolitan experience crisscrossing the world, getting educated in elite universities and coming back to their home countries and then spreading these ideas, but still largely in the elite spheres. So, I mean, one thing I'm interested in is what do you think is a, what is a good example of, of knowledge production about the world, which isn't something that happens in a, in a top-down kind of way, but in a bottom-up kind of way in which, in which citizens are the ones who are, who are illuminating those in, in positions of power, how they should understand the world and how their voices, I guess, can be amplified in their understanding of the world. Basically, to add to that, uh, you know, how do you decolonize IR or to be even more, <laughs> more controversial, how do you defund IR? Like, who's defunding IR right now? Who's, who's on that struggle to defund yeah. IR? How do you break the donor industrial complex, which you're talking about earlier? <laughs> defund IR. Is IR funded at all? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I mean that, you know, what I, I mean symbolically. I mean symbolically, like, you know what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to get at. But then, it, 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 that's, that's a really good question. How do we decolonize IR? Um, I'm not totally sure even that's possible. And I'm sounding a bit pessimistic here, but um, I'll go back to um, when Ms. Cesaire um, wrote uh, his letter of resignation um, to Maurice Torres, who was the head of the French Communist Party. Um, Cesaire, among all the gri uh, grievances he had regarding the French Communist Party was that he came to the realization that the the interests of the French worker, the focus of the French Communist Party was not similar to that of the colonized. Cesar realized that the Communist Party is not set up to take up the concerns of the people from the colonized world. It's not, it's, it's not just a critique that you're not doing a good job, it's that your concerns are not ours. Therefore, the tools that you are using to advance your cause will not do us any good, and we must exit this. I'm not necessarily saying that we must exit IR, but I'm not sure the tools that the IR is working with are useful for scholars that are concerned with the present and the future of the Global South. Samar? So I'm not going to attempt to answer this <laughs> question about how to defund and how to decolonize, uh, but I will just flag that you know the the question of defunding is huge when it comes to our political imagination, right? 
Uh, and just if we think about the ICC alone and the way in which it really has colonized our minds to think that this is the one path to justice. Um, and, and when I, you know, I think of the donor industrial complex and the role that it played in funding so many NGOs to spread the gospel about the ICC, uh, that, that matters um, in order to, to shift our thinking, to broaden our thinking about change and how it comes about. Um, to return to your question, Will, about knowledge, um, I'll just focus on an unrecognized form of knowledge that circulates within a Muslim minority population in Kenya, uh, primarily among activists who are grappling with the uh, expansive policing apparatus that now exists in Kenya, thanks to um, Kenya's role as an ally in the war on terror, the funding they have received from the US and the UK to go after so-called terror suspects. And these activists on a day-to-day -day basis are going to prisons, going to courthouses, going to families, to find out um, where people were taken. A lot of times people just disappear off the streets and the activists accumulate knowledge um, bit by bit about you know, whether one person is an ex-prison or maybe they were taken across the border to Uganda by an unnamed force, but we're working on figuring out who they are. They were, you know, maybe they were ununiformed, um, driving an unmarked car, right? And it's these like minute forms of knowledge that accumulate that for the activists in Kenya amount to what I analyze as a very sophisticated understanding of the workings of empire, of the workings of geopolitics, as they piece together who is making what decisions under, you know, according to what laws, according to whose orders. Um, but it, you know, there then is a gap that, that remains between scholarly so-called expert analysis of the war on terror and the people on the ground who are on the receiving end of its power and its abuses. And um, to add to what Samar said, um, I think there's also um, some interesting new developments in IR scholarship. Um, for instance, um, over the past few years, there's been more and more scholars um, writing in what is called everyday IR, um, ground level individual experiences and how it is affects and how it affects also um, global politics. And oftentimes um, these writings they use uh, the narrative voice. So there's now even some journals that are specifically geared towards uh, scholarship that is using the individual and the narrative voice. I think this is uh, one area where I see um, a potential of um, looking at the miniature, the detailed um, experiences and bringing back basically the individual to um, the scholarship of international politics. Well, Okay, I just I just want to ask um, a question about what you guys see as the future of of international relations. Maybe you could talk about international relations as the discipline, but I think I'm I'm more interested in, in international relations as as interactions between states. Um, because I mean, the moment we're in now, it it kind of feels like we're experiencing the end of the second wave of globalization. Um, if you follow the idea that the the first wave of globalization ended with uh, the first and second world wars. Uh, it was 
big conflicts, uh, another pandemic and the Spanish flu and, and calamity and destruction. And we've been living through the second wave of globalization. Um, and some people are saying that's, that's kind of ending now. Um, do you think that's true? And, and more generally, what is the future of international relations in the sense that the COVID-19 pandemic seems to be opening up two paths of how states can interact with each other. We can either see more of international cooperation in a positive sense as countries and states are talking about the need to collaborate to find a vaccine for the COVID-19 pandemic and to generally ensure that we, we have a more equitable distribution of resources and expertise between the North and the South and pressure being put on the global North to, to do their bit in, in, in contributing to, to uh, creating, yeah, creating a more fair and equitable international order. Or we could move in the direction, which personally to me seems a bit more likely, which is that states turn more and more inward, become more and more isolationist, and we see the sort of return of, of, of the nation, which is something that, that neoliberal globalization kind of undercut. And now we're seeing this return of, of emphasizing a so-called national interest and prioritizing that ahead of, of how you might interact with, with other countries in your sphere of influence. Okay, I'll, I'll go. Um, that, that's a really difficult question. Um, but one, one thing that this current moment we live in, uh, which is a very disruptive moment because of uh, what is happening with the pandemic, but also um, the rise of uh, far-right uh, political parties, uh, whether it's in the United States or in Europe. So all this disruption, I think, at least it tells us one thing that the distinction that IR tends to make between the domestic and the international is not relevant any longer. That international politics and domestic politics are basically one of the, and the same. And if IR want to remain relevant, maybe we need to rethink how we study international politics itself, because this is no longer just about states an international organization. This is also about domestic constituencies. This is also about the cities and how cities are governed and the relationship between cities and other states, for instance. I'm not sure. I certainly don't have a, an adequate answer to that question, but uh, I can, I guess I can dream. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm just thinking about the possibility of you know, it's really remarkable what we've observed in the U.S. in terms of the shift in uh, the discourse and the shift in the imagination about what seems possible as a result of the George Floyd protests. And um, I mean, I think it would be just great to think about how that could kind of um, not transfer necessarily to the global sphere, but it's very, very clear that institutions change only in response to mass uprising. And what we need is this kind of uprising um, that, that pushes back against the current existing global order. And you know, institutions like the UN, like the ICC are very, very invested in maintaining their power 
and continued relevance. And so it's gonna take a lot for them to shift gears in any way. I don't think even with the rise in uh, nationalism in the wake of COVID, that they will disappear. They will they will spend huge amounts of money to stay to stay functioning and to stay relevant. Uh, but it's about us, I think, pushing um, pushing the conversation. So I'm pushing the conversation and to to just kind of end this off because this, this is there's a lot more we could talk about. But if I was somebody and I didn't know much about, I'm trying to like you know be part of this struggle, part of this dream <laughs> to to dream differently about international affairs as a, or international relations as a, as, a, as a thing about how we govern the world and then about the way that scholars interact in this. If I come to you and I say, apart from yourselves, who I should follow on Twitter um, and who I should read, uh, who, who, who would you send young people to or just any person, somebody sitting on their couch going, I would like to know more about this. Like if regularly, who should they go read right now? Like if you can get two or three recommendations that you could give to our viewers or our listeners. Okay, I'll jump in with a couple uh, things that I've been reading lately. And uh, uh, one is, is, is still kind of confined to the world of academia, but it's still relevant because um, it's relevant. So Grace Musila, who is a Kenyan scholar based at Stellenbosch, has a couple of fantastic articles about um, knowledge production and I think what she calls the north-south intellectual landscape. And she's confronting the fact that, you know, surprise, surprise, the resources, et cetera, remain in the global north such that um, it's global north forms of knowledge that remain hegemonic. Um, and she's really pushing us to think critically even about questions of collaboration across north and south in light of all of the different resource constraints that, that are in play. And um, one of the terms she uses that I really like is uh, intellectual inbreeding that exists because of these hegemonic knowledge forms, right? That we just, we, we operate in this very, very small world, right? Where we're all citing the same people and we're not in the end thinking very creatively. So I really appreciated that. Um, the second is a book called Making the World Global by Isaac Kamola. And it's all about the ways in which the US university system has socialized to think about what counts and what does not count as the so-called global. Um, a couple of uh, recommendations I would give um, for uh, a broader understanding of what we've been discussing today, especially regarding race and racism and uh, global South perspectives in IR. Um, one edited book um, by um, uh, Robbie Shiriam and um, uh, Ruta Zibwa. So it's called the Raleigh Handbook of um, Postcolonial Politics. Um, there are a lot of contributions, uh, good chapters that do address these questions. And uh, another edited book by uh, Anivas uh, Shiriam and uh, uh, Manchanda um, called uh, Race and Racism in IR Confronting the Global Color Line. Um, these two books um, together provide, I don't know, something about maybe 30 chapters altogether um, discussing um, 
the history, but also the present uh, condition of uh, race and racism in IR scholarship, and also a lot of perspectives uh, and decolonial perspectives from the global south. Thank you so much, guys. Those are some some excellent excellent recommendations, and thank you so much to the both of you, Samar and Omar, for joining us on today's episode. Uh, thank you guys for being here and thank you to you, our viewers, for watching us. Uh, we'll also recommend that Africa is a Country is a great publication to follow to understand how Africans are engaging these perspectives. And if you haven't figured out by this point, Africa is not a country um, and we're, we're, we're making fun of a, of a stereotype that, that found itself in, in international relations. Uh, many thanks to Antoinette Engel, who is our wonderful producer for keeping the production crisp and the sound audible. And we will see you guys all next week. Stay tuned and we'll have more fantastic guests. Thank you to Sean, my, my co-host. Um, I'm no longer his translator, which is very sad news. He's audible and visible today so he can speak for himself. Uh, and yeah, thank you for joining us and see you all next week. Thank you all. Bye.